How did a 4th century bishop become the symbol of all things Christmas? Well, you can blame the state of New York. That's ahead on Footnoting History. Hello, 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 and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. Now, as some of you may know, December 6th, which for me was yesterday, is the Feast of St. Nicholas, a holiday which really isn't celebrated all that much anymore, but this was not always the case. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about the history of St. Nicholas and how he was transformed over 2,000 years into the figure we know today as Santa Claus. Our story begins in the latter days of the Roman Empire. According to a very, very old Christian tradition, Nicholas was Greek and was born in the late 3rd century in the coastal city of Petara in what was then Asia Minor, but today is the modern country of Turkey. His parents died when he was young, and he was raised by his uncle, the Bishop of Petara, who encouraged Nicholas to also become a priest, which he did, and he served as the bishop of the nearby town of Mira in the first half of the 4th century. Now, because of this dating and the location of Mira, tradition also holds that he was present at the First Council of Nicaea, or Nicaea, in 325. This was the first ecumenical or general council of the Christian church, and it was called by the Roman Emperor Constantine to settle a number of theological questions which divided Christians at the time. Perhaps the most serious of which was a disagreement about the relationship between Jesus Christ and God. Some people, whose position was articulated by a North African priest named Arius, believed that Jesus and God were separate beings. Others claimed that Christ himself said that they were the same substance, though people were still trying to figure out what exactly that meant. Of course, the latter position won out, and the council promulgated the Nicene Creed with its statement that Christ is one in being or consubstantial with the Father. Anyway, Nicholas was supposedly present at this conference as one of the opponents of Arius and a proponent of the ultimately victorious, uh, one in being consubstantial camp, though there isn't any concrete evidence for this, it's simply tradition. Either way, according to tradition, he died on December 6th, 343, and was buried in a church in Mira. Sometime after Nicholas's death, he began to be revered in Mira as a saint, and within two centuries, a small cult, or devotional following, had grown up around him in Mira and had begun to spread elsewhere in Asia Minor. Now, the position and role of saints in the Christian faith is not something that was fixed or determined from the earliest days of the church, and even during the Middle Ages, the role of the saints was still undergoing evolution. But by and large, a saint is someone who is acknowledged either locally or more widely by ecclesiastical authorities as a person who has led an exceptionally virtuous, godly life, who has been a paragon of Christian behavior and a conduit for divine grace to be made manifest on earth. As conduits for divine grace, some saints are even able to perform miracles during their lifetime, and stories of their virtuous lives and miracles give rise to a genre of writing known as hagiography, literally writing about the saints. This is not to say that saints were always to be emulated in everything that they did. In fact, there are times when saints are not to be emulated, because they do things that are so radical that they're really only possible or sanctioned by virtue of their extraordinary divine grace and favor. And to be honest, if everyone went around trying to be like the saints, nothing would ever really get done in the world. We would have a lot more people like Marjorie Kemp in medieval history. In case you don't know, Marjorie was a 15th century mystic who really, really wanted to be a saint, so she would do all sorts of crazy things like falling down crying all the time because Jesus made her so happy, or run around kissing lepers and making them uncomfortable. 
Anyway, the point is that the conduit of divine grace aspect of sanctity did not end with the saint's death, and it was believed that a saint's body or his or her closest possessions, uh, things like tunics for instance, could still serve as conduits for divine grace. Here, geography played a role, because the saint, now that he or she is dead, is literally closer to God, and so is able to directly intercede on your behalf. Sometimes saints are given permission to directly affect the physical world, often through the conduit of their physical remains or relics. So what you have is the emergence of something called the cult, or veneration of the saints. And people begin making pilgrimages to saints' graves, so that they can be physically geographically near the saint and ask for special favors or healing from physical ailments. Over time, it begins to be believed that certain saints are particularly sympathetic to certain causes, issues, or groups. Uh, these are usually connected with events from the saint's life in some way, and so hagiography also tends to record miracles done after the saint's death as further proof of their sanctity and sort of to help define the areas of their patronage. In the case of Saint Nicholas, a number of stories arise after his death that attest to both his saintly life and his miracles. Over time, these stories were expanded, elaborated, and embellished to various degrees as they were transmitted across Europe in various collections of hagiography, and as models of sanctity altered over time, Nicholas was made to conform to those modes. So, for example, some hagiographies say that even as an infant, he began to practice fasting and would only breastfeed from his mother twice a week on Wednesdays and Fridays. But perhaps the most important story for us is that of the three virgins. When Nicholas's parents died, he had not yet become Bishop of Mira, and they left him a substantial inheritance. Shortly thereafter, he learned that one of his neighbors, who had three virgin daughters, had fallen into extreme poverty. As a result, the neighbor couldn't provide dowries for the girls in order for them to get married, and in fact, they were on the verge of having to resort to prostitution in order to make ends meet. So, one night, Nicholas takes a quantity of gold, wraps it in a cloth, and, under cover of darkness, throws it into their house, either by a window or down the chimney, depending on the version. The family awakes the next morning, and the father uses the money as a dowry for his first daughter. A few days later, Nicholas again throws another bag of gold into the family's home, and when he goes back a third time, the father runs after Nicholas in order to thank him, but Nicholas swears the man to secrecy. It's easy to see the connections between this story and the modern version of Santa Claus. However, Nicholas's patronage as a saint extended to a number of areas. Several stories told in the 13th century hagiography collection, The Golden Legend, which was compiled by the Dominican friar Jacobus, or sometimes you see him as Jacques de Voragine, uh, relate several instances where Nicholas becalmed stormy seas or saved pilgrims traveling by boat from the devices of the devil. Thus, Nicholas also became a patron saint of sailors and merchants. The Golden Legend also records how Nicholas saved three innocent knights from being beheaded. Uh, never mind that there were no knights in the 4th century. A similar story, not in the Golden Legend, one used by Benjamin Britten and Eric Crozier in their 1948 St. Nicholas Cantata, has numerous variations and involves a butcher, sometimes in Mira, sometimes somewhere else, killing three boys and attempting to serve their flesh to the saint. Uh, usually he puts their flesh inside a pickle barrel or pickles the flesh and then tries to serve it to Nicholas. Uh, but Nicholas realizes what has happened and he miraculously resurrects the boys. This story, taken in conjunction with several others, led to Nicholas being identified as a patron saint of children. At any rate, stories and veneration of Saint Nicholas spread throughout Eastern Europe in the early Middle Ages. He was also venerated in Western Europe, though to a slightly lesser degree, at least until 1087. 
Now to explain what happens here, we have to back up a bit. Beginning in about 965, the island of Sicily fell under Arabic control, and it remained so for the better part of a century, until several waves of Normans from, well, Normandy, uh, counter-invaded and started pushing the Muslim Arabs out. Over the course of the 11th century, both the island of Sicily and most of southern Italy fell into Norman hands. Now, one place that came into the possession of the Normans was the town of Bari. Before the Normans, Bari had been a possession of the Byzantine Empire, which was the last remnant of the Roman Empire in the east with its capital at Constantinople. Uh, today, the city is called Istanbul. And for more on this, there's a very nice They Might Be Giants song I'm sure you've heard before. And Nicole talked about Byzantine Italy in her podcast on popular unrest in Ravenna. Anyway, Bari was an important port town on the Adriatic. Uh, if you imagine the boot of Italy, Bari is sort of at the bottom end of where the Achilles tendon would be. And it was a point of trade contact between the Eastern and Western Mediterranean. And in 1071, it fell to Norman hands. That same year, the Byzantine Empire began to experience significant losses in Asia Minor to the invading forces of the Seljuk Turks. And for the next several decades, portions of Asia Minor, including Mira, fell under Turkish control. According to contemporary chroniclers, in 1087, a group of merchants from Bari who were in Antioch heard that the Venetians were on their way to Mira to steal the relics of St. Nicholas. Now, Venice was one of Bari's main trade rivals, so the merchants made a beeline for Mira. Now, according to the legend, when Nicholas was buried, a kind of wonderful-smelling oily substance called manna or myrrh started issuing out of his body. And once the men located the remains, much to the protestations of the monks that were guarding him, uh, the bones were sort of swimming in this oil. The merchants lied to the monks and told them that they had been sent by the Pope to collect the remains, after which they basically stole the bones, brought them back to Bari, where they were translated, which just means moved to a new resting place, on the 9th of May. Thus, in the Western Catholic calendar, and in the Russian Orthodox calendar, oddly enough, but not in the other Eastern Orthodox traditions, there are two days dedicated to St. Nicholas, the Feast of his death, December 6th, and the Feast of his translation, May 9th. This kind of relic theft was not uncommon in the Middle Ages, and movement of relics from one place to another was often used as a tool of both political legitimation and economics. It was legitimating because the physical presence of the saint signified his or her patronage and protection of the town or region that they resided in, and showed divine favor upon whomever managed to accomplish the relic theft. The more popular the saint, the more the relic transfer provided legitimation. But saints' cults were also an important source of income, because people making pilgrimage to visit relics had to have places to stay, they had to food to eat, and souvenirs to take home, so having a popular saint that brought in lots of pilgrims was a bolster to the local economy. Bari thus became a new important religious destination in southern Italy, and the town made a killing. They would even bottle the oily substance that miraculously continued to ooze from his body and sell it to pilgrims. In fact, to this day, you can still buy St. Nicholas's oil, which has continued to ooze from his body, in the gift shop of the church where he's buried. Following the movement of Nicholas's relics to Bari, his cult in the West really began to take off. The Venetians, perhaps a little bit bitter at being beaten to the relics, rather hilariously said that the Barian merchants hadn't gotten all of the bones out of the crypt and mirror, only some of them, and they said that they had collected the rest and thus tried to establish a counter-cult center of Nicholas veneration in Venice. 
Even Bari, though, had trouble holding onto the relics, as various emissaries and at least one Scandinavian king made off with bits and pieces of Nicholas, establishing other shrines to him in places like Switzerland and in modern-day France, in the region of Lorraine near the town of Nancy. As a quick side note, they performed forensic analysis on uh, the bones in Bari and Venice in 2004-2005 and determined that they came from the same skeleton, and they've been able to do a facial reconstruction of what the skeleton that is supposed to be St. Nicholas actually looked like. But as Christianity spread throughout Eastern and Western Europe, so too did the cult of Nicholas. In addition to his role as a patron of sailors, merchants, and children, Nicholas was also occasionally summoned as a healer, and sometimes you see him included in the list of 14 holy helpers, uh, saints that were considered particularly efficacious in warding off the plague in the 14th and 15th centuries. So, you may be wondering, how do we get from this popular saint to Santa Claus? Well, this is where our story gets a little messy, and as a historian, I get a little frustrated. With regard to St. Nicholas, the popularity of his cult is well attested in the Middle Ages, and there's quite a bit of scholarly discussion about it. Most of what's out there about Santa Claus, though, at least what was readily accessible to me as I was doing research for this podcast, is intended for a popular audience. Now, I'm all in favor of this, obviously, because I do this podcast. However, this podcast is called Footnoting History, and the one thing missing from most histories of Santa Claus is, in fact, footnotes. The problem with not having footnotes is that if information is inaccurate, sometimes it can get repeated over and over again. Uh, you'll see this in a second when I start ranting about Washington Irving. And pretty soon, everyone starts believing something that just isn't true, simply because everyone says that it's so. For example, one fact, and I'm making air quotes here with my hands, that I encountered time and again is that the gift-giving associated with the Feast of St. Nicholas may originally derive from a tradition started by some French nuns in the 12th century who would leave out small treats on the doorsteps of poor children in their community during the eve of his feast. The problem is that none of the places where I've read this, and I must have seen this in at least 10 different books, actually provide a citation to where they got this information. Oddly enough, the phrasing is almost identical in every instance. The nuns are always French. They're never Norman or Alsatian or some other region, only French. Now, I realize that some of you may be saying, who cares? And you're probably right. But if anyone out there knows exactly where this story is from, please do let me know, because I've been killing myself trying to figure it out. But this is just one example of something I encountered time and again while doing research on this topic. The fact is that most works on the history of these traditions just are not well footnoted. Uh, a couple of exceptions that I would make here are um, The Battle for Christmas by a former University of Massachusetts Amherst professor, uh, Stephen Nissenbaum, which details the history and development of uh, Christmas celebrations and the Santa Claus mythos in America, beginning in the colonial period and going through the 19th century. The other book that I would mention is Santa Claus, A Biography by Jerry Bowler, who is a professor at the University of Manitoba. Uh, I found this book extremely helpful in preparing this podcast, and a lot of information in this podcast is drawn from it. The problem is that the book is written for a popular press. Popular presses tend to not like lots of footnotes or endnotes, so even though Bowler is able to include some endnotes at the end of the book, there's still sometimes information which just doesn't get cited. With the exception of these works, though, and a few others that I will include in the further reading list on the website, a lot of what's out there on the history of Christmas and Santa Claus tends to be a little thin on citation, which is just a personal pet peeve, and I should probably seek therapy. 
What does seem to be well established is that by the late 15th century, the practice of giving gifts to children on St. Nicholas's feast day, or on the eve of his feast day in some cases, had become a tradition in many parts of Northern Europe, and many towns would have a special market or fair on or around his feast day. In fact, gift giving during the Christmas season, not just to children, but between adults as well, dates back centuries before this. And it's worth noting that for most of its history, Christmas has been a season that stretches from the first Sunday in Advent or the Feast of St. Nicholas. Sometimes for towns in Germany like Mainz, uh, it begins with the Feast of St. Martin on November the 11th and goes all the way to Epiphany on January 6th, which celebrates the coming of the Three Wise Men. And gifts could be given at any time during this period, not just on December 25th. All this begins to change, however, during the period of the Reformation in the 16th century. One of the aspects of the Catholic faith that many Protestant reformers rejected was the cult of the saints. And in Protestant countries, veneration of Nicholas and the observance of his feast day slowly dwindled. In one of his discourses, Martin Luther refers to the feast of St. Nicholas and the practice of giving gifts to children. He writes, God could easily give you grain and fruit without your plowing and planting, but he does not want to do so. Neither does he want your plowing and planting alone to give you grain and fruit, but you are to plow and plant and then ask for his blessing and pray, Now let God take over. Now grant grain and fruit, dear Lord. Our plowing and planting will not do it. It is thy gift. This is what we do when we teach children to fast and pray and hang up their stockings so that the Christ child or St. Nicholas may bring them presents. But if they do not pray, they will get nothing or only a switch and horse apples. There are a couple of things to notice here, the first of which is that Luther is attesting to the practice of hanging up stockings in order to receive presents. But you'll also notice that he said that the Christ child or St. Nicholas may bring them presents. And this is one of the things that happens during the Protestant Reformation. The practice of giving gifts to children gets transferred from the saint, from Nicholas, to Christ, specifically the young or infant Jesus. In German, this is das Christkind, uh, which is where one of Santa's epithets, Chris Kringle, comes from. And the markets once dedicated to Nicholas begin to instead be dedicated to the Christ child, so they become Christkindlmarkt. The final thing to note about the Luther passage is this use of gift giving as a means of behavior enforcement. And this is something that really takes hold in the Protestant regions of Europe. Now, a lot of the histories of Christmas and Santa Claus here want to say that this association between Nicholas and good behavior is where some of the dark counterparts to St. Nicholas arise. Uh, things like Krampus, the South German and Austrian tradition of a devil-like creature who punishes wicked children. In France, he's accompanied by a character named Père Foutard, and in the Netherlands by Zwarte Piet, a small black man dressed in garish clothing. This Dutch Santa Claus lives in Spain, and he arrives on December 6th with Zwarte Piet in tow to hand out presents to good Dutch children. However, as far as I can tell, many of these are actually later editions, and some of them, like Zwarte Piet, are actually probably creations of the 19th century, which is really the golden age of Santa Claus creation. Uh, more on that in a bit. But for the most part, in Protestant countries, with the notable exception of the Netherlands, celebration of St. Nicholas Day really starts to diminish. In fact, Calvinist Protestants really hate the whole Christmas celebration party thing altogether, because Calvinists were about serious and sober living, and were against revelry of almost any kind. In England, this group is known as the Puritans, and yes, these are the fun-loving people who found the state of Massachusetts and kill people for being witches. The Protestant Puritans, both the American version and the English version, absolutely hate anything which smacks of Catholicism, 
And during the 1650s, after the Puritans had killed the king, Charles I, and put Britain under the protectorate of the Puritan Oliver Cromwell, they actually banned public Christmas celebrations of any kind. That's right, the Puritans canceled Christmas. Other Protestant countries were far more loath to give up their traditions. In the Netherlands, particularly in the city of Amsterdam, despite attempts to legislate against the celebration of St. Nicholas's feast day, people still exchanged gifts and gave treats to children, and the figure of St. Nicholas, or Sinterklaas, complete in his red bishop's robes, mitre, and crozier, still lingered. Dutch devotion to St. Nicholas continued when they founded a colony in the Americas at New Amsterdam, which is today, of course, New York City. After the colony passed from Dutch into English hands, many Dutch influences and traditions remained, including the observance of the Feast of St. Nicholas, which was first remarked upon by a New York newspaper, Rivington's Gazetteer, in 1773. Which brings us to the next major development in the Santa Claus myth. In 1809, Washington Irving, a 26-year-old aspiring writer and native New Yorker, anonymously published his first book, entitled A History of New York from the Beginning of the World to the End of the Dutch Dynasty by Diedrich Knickerbocker. Irving is perhaps better remembered for his second book, The Sketchbook of Geoffrey Crayon, Gentleman, which contained the short stories The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle. As a medievalist, I have a particular and perhaps unjustified dislike of Irving, because in 1828 he publishes A History of the Life and Voyages of Christopher Columbus, wherein, for purposes of storytelling, he says that everyone in Europe at the end of the 15th century thought that the Earth was flat, and Columbus was the only one who thought it was round. The book was very popular, and so a generation of people grew up reading it and sort of thinking that it was true, to the point that it started working its way into textbooks. The fact is that Europeans had known for over 2,000 years that the Earth was round, and in fact had known, roughly, the circumference of the Earth since it was first calculated by Eratosthenes in the 2nd century BC. On the other hand, Columbus massively undercalculated the circumference of the Earth by about 10,000 kilometers, but that's for another podcast. Anyway, at the time of its publication, the Knickerbocker History of New York was a huge success. In it, Irving satirized much of the lingering Dutch culture and history of New York, and one recurring theme in the work is the Dutch devotion to St. Nicholas. When describing the figurehead on a ship's bow, which featured a large carving of St. Nicholas, he says that the saint was equipped with a low, broad-brimmed hat, a huge pair of Flemish trunk hose, and a pipe that reached to the end of the bowsprit. One character even has a dream about St. Nicholas, in which he came riding over the tops of the trees in that self-same wagon wherein he brings his yearly presents to children. And he descended hard by where the heroes of Communipaw had made their late repast, and he lit his pipe by the fire and sat himself down and smoked. And as he smoked, the smoke from his pipe ascended into the air and spread like a cloud overhead. And then skipping ahead a little bit. And when St. Nicholas had smoked his pipe, he twisted it in his hat band, and laying his finger beside his nose, gave the astonished Van Cortland a very significant look. Then mounting his wagon, he returned over the treetops and disappeared. Later on in the book, Irving describes how, in the sylvan days of New Amsterdam, the good St. Nicholas would often make his appearance in his beloved city of a holiday afternoon, riding jollily among the treetops or over the roofs of houses, now and then drawing forth magnificent presents from his breeches pockets and dropping them down the chimneys of his favorites. Whereas in these degenerate days of iron and brass, he never shows us the light of his countenance nor ever visits us save one night in the year when he rattles down the chimneys of the descendants of the great patriarchs, confining his presence merely to the children, in token of the degeneracy of the parents. Gone from Irving's depiction are the bishop's robe and staff, 
and instead he's shown in a flying wagon, smoking a pipe and sporting a brimmed hat in what is supposed to be a stereotype of the Dutch. The next major development and change to St. Nicholas came a little over a decade later, when William Gilly, again a New Yorker, published The Children's Friend, a New Year's present to little ones from 12 to 5. Contained within the book was an anonymous poem, which began, Old Santa Claus with much delight his reindeer drives this frosty night, or chimney tops and tracks of snow to bring his yearly gifts to you. This, as far as anyone can tell, is the first mention made of reindeer in conjunction with Santa Claus. I should note that some writers about Santa Claus want to make a kind of anthropological or folkloric connection between Santa and German mythology, uh, particularly in saying that veneration of St. Nicholas was used by early Christian missionaries to substitute for Germanic and Scandinavian devotion to Odin or Wotan, and the reindeer are a reference to Thor, who had a chariot pulled by two goats. Now, make of that what you will, it's certainly possible, but there is no connection, at least in text, between Nicholas and reindeer before 1821. As for the authorship of this poem, as I said, for many years it remained anonymous, and still kind of does to this day, but there have been some attempts to connect it to another New York author, Clement Clark Moore, and with good reason. Two years after the publication of The Child's Friend, the Troy New York newspaper, The Sentinel, published another anonymous poem entitled A Visit from St. Nicholas, which you probably know better by its opening line, "'Twas the night before Christmas." It wasn't until 1844 that Clement Clark Moore owned up to his authorship of the poem, and some people, because it took him so long to do so, kind of doubt that he is actually the author. Uh, but part of the reason why he takes so long to sort of own up to what became a very popular poem was in part because of his profession. Moore was a professor of Hebrew, Greek literature, and biblical learning at the Episcopal General Theological Seminary in New York City. He had composed the poem a year before, in 1822, for his children, and a friend had the next year sent it into the newspaper. Nevertheless, the poem was and continues to be wildly popular, and it arguably did more to change the image of St. Nicholas into the modern version of Santa Claus than any other work. Because it is so influential, it's worth reciting in full here. So, "'Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds, while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads, and Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters, and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer? With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donder and Blixem, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As dry leaves that before wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle mount to the sky, so up to the housetop the coursers they flew, with a sleigh full of toys, and St. Nicholas too. And then in a twinkling I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. 
a bundle of toys he had on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes how they twinkled, his dimples how merry, his cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a round little belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word but went straight to work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk, and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod up the chimney he rose, he sprang to his sleigh to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. So, things to point out here. First, a detail a lot of people overlook. Santa, the reindeer, and the sleigh are all tiny. This is not a full-sized man, but an elf or a sprite, and his reindeer are also miniature reindeer. Speaking of reindeer, this is the first time that there are eight of them, and they're all given names. The last two you may have noticed were names slightly different from what you may have heard before, Donder and Blixem. These names are Dutch for thunder and lightning, respectively, which sort of fuels that connection to Norse and Germanic mythology. But in subsequent editions of the poem, they were altered to Donner and Blitzen. This is also one of the first instances where we've seen where Nicholas is fat. There are a couple of other nods to Irving St. Nicholas, the jovial quality, the pipe, the finger against the nose parting gesture. But this in some ways is an entirely new Santa. And all subsequent depictions of Santa, at least in America, derive from this poem. From this point forward, this is the definitive Santa Claus. Over the course of the 19th century, Santa's image gets tweaked here and there. There are several times where he explicitly gets tied to U.S. patriotic images. Perhaps the most famous of these is a picture drawn by the German-born illustrator Thomas Nast for the January 3, 1863 cover of Harper's Weekly, entitled Santa in Camp, which shows Santa and his reindeer-pulled sleigh delivering presents to Union soldiers in the Civil War. It's a fascinating image because Santa is basically wearing an American flag. His fur-lined coat is decorated with a dark field with white stars, and his pants are striped like the U.S. flag. Reinforcing this connection is the fact that directly over his head is the Union flag. Nast will go on to create a number of other images of Santa, working in his workshop preparing gifts for children, and it is Nast who will affix Santa's home at the North Pole in an 1866 set of images entitled Santa Claus and His Works, which has him living in Santa Clausville, N.P., North Pole. As you can tell, the complete disconnect from the religious tradition of St. Nicholas permitted Santa Claus to develop certain characteristics and attributes that he might not otherwise have had. Perhaps the most significant of these was the creation of his wife. References to Mrs. Claus date to at least the mid-19th century, but she really doesn't get elaborated on as a character until about the 1880s, at which point she tends to embody the virtues of an idealized 19th century housewife, making sweets and baked goods, tending the household, and overseeing the domestic side of Santa Claus's toy production, which itself, with its army of elf factory workers, evolved into a reflection of 19th century industrialism. Nevertheless, both Santa and his wife were not suddenly static, fixed characters, and once they entered the popular consciousness, they began to be appropriated by any number of causes. Uh, stories, poems, and images of Santa and Mrs. Claus were used by such wildly disparate groups as the temperance movement, women's suffrage, and even white supremacists. 
and Saint himself became a tool in debates about social inequality, capitalism, and poverty. In addition to politics, though, Santa's image was ripe for usage in advertising because he was in the public domain. No one could hold a copyright to a myth. Perhaps the most famous example of this is the Coca-Cola Santa, first drawn in 1931 by Haddon Suddenbloom. A lot of people think that Suddenbloom came up with the image of Santa in his red coat and pants, but this is in fact not true. He had been depicted that way for quite some time, uh, dating as far back as the Dutch Sinterklaas in his red bishop's robes, and he had certainly been portrayed that way in American culture before, most notably by Norman Rockwell in his Christmas covers for the Saturday Evening Post. The final development in the history of Santa Claus I want to talk about is that of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Here again, advertising plays a key role, and Rudolph owes his existence to the invention, in the late 19th century, of the coloring book. Originally, coloring books were designed for watercolors, but just before the turn of the century, American wax crayon companies began to take off, and coloring books started to be marketed as colorable with either watercolors or crayons. In 1939, retail giant Montgomery Ward decided to create an in-house coloring book story exclusive to their stores that they would give away as part of a free promotion, and they commissioned New York ad artist Robert May with creating the story. And so May came up with the story of Rudolph, a reindeer with a shiny red nose, seemingly a birth defect, that is instead able to cut through the dark fog of a particularly murky Christmas Eve and allow Santa to fulfill his gift-delivering duties. The story was a huge commercial success for Montgomery Ward. It exploded even further when, a decade later following World War II, May's brother-in-law, Johnny Marks, set the story to music after Montgomery Ward gave May back the distribution rights to the character, and country singer Gene Autry recorded the song, which became the most popular Christmas song of 1949. The phenomenal success of Rudolph in turn spawned several cartoons and a 1964 stop-motion animation film produced by Rankin Bass and narrated by Burl Ives. The Rudolph film proved to be one of Rankin Bass's greatest successes, and they subsequently produced a number of other stop-motion Christmas specials about Rudolph, uh, Frosty the Snowman, which was based on another Gene Autry song composed to capitalize on the success of Rudolph, and of course, Santa Claus. So, in the long transformation from saint to television star, St. Nicholas is never apolitical. Even as early as his forced relocation from Mira to Bari in the 11th century, Nicholas has always been a tool for people to use. And even today, Christmas and Santa are highly political topics. So, the next time someone laments the loss of Christmas traditions and values, you might want to ask them how they're observing the Feast of St. Nicholas. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!